the next thing I knew, a nurse came in and she said, it's a brain tumour. I was like, what? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> and she walked up to the light box, put the scan on there, and it was just this big, like, white blob in the middle of my brain. And after that, it's just blur. This is Unforgettable Moments, a podcast by Forever New. The moments that shape our lives can fly past in the blink of an eye. The time we fell in love, the moment we decided to forge our own path. Each moment special, yet too often forgotten as we hustle towards the next milestone. In a world where everyone's rushing to get ahead and create change, we ask, how can we pause and reflect on the moments that made us the women we are today? I'm Michelle Kidnor from The Peers Project, show producer and host. And in this four-part series, we go behind the curtain into a pivotal moment of a reputable woman's life and discover how it shaped them into who they've become today. Our guest today is the phenomenal Amy Pekovic, an elite Australian athlete and model who has been featured in the likes of Cosmopolitan and Women's Fitness magazine. After discovering her flair for high jump when she was 10 years old, Amy has since catapulted her career onto the global stage. When she was 16, Amy was chosen to represent Australia at the World Youth Championships in Italy, where she placed second. She subsequently made it into the top 20 position on the World IAAF jumping ranks and has achieved her personal best jump of 187 centimetres. Yes, Amy can high jump over most of our heights. But just as she was training to qualify for the London Olympics, Amy's career came to a sudden halt when she was diagnosed with a tumour on her brainstem at just 19 years old. Today, Amy takes us behind the curtain of these pivotal moments of her life, the time she discovered her passion for high jump and her decision to keep leaping or jumping for the stars, even after her life-changing diagnosis. My childhood was, it was good fun. It was good fun. So we used to live out in Windsor Downs. So we lived on acreage and our, I think you'd call them a backdoor neighbour, so behind us, they had horses and we had chickens and I used to like run around chasing the chickens, chasing the horses. And then when it would storm, the backyard, it almost turned into like a little river, that almost a little river that would flow through. My sister and I, oh, she was like teeny tiny, but I'd drag her out and we'd jump in our boogie boards and just go from one end of the property to the other and have to jump off because I think there was a bit of a, a drop at the other end. So I don't think mum would have been very happy if <laughs> one of us didn't come back up. But then um, one other time mum was like, I was just a menace. I would, I think I stole a plumber's egg and I got, <laughs> mum was sitting <laughs> in the kitchen watching me bolt from the end of the backyard with his plumber like <laughs> swooping me. So she was always like, that's where we think you got your athleticism from because I used to just run around the backyard and, and then, gosh, then we moved to the North Shore and went to a Catholic, Catholic primary school in Warunga and I had good friends there and that's kind of where I started 
kind of where I started to love playing sport, like sort of anything. My school PE teacher was like, okay, you're, um, you're, you're tall and kind of lanky. We'll put you into high jump. And I was like, okay, what's this high jump thing? So that's kind of where it started and, yeah. There you go. There we go. Oh, so interesting. <laughs> I find it fascinating how it came to you at such an early age, you know, like you kind of always were out and about in the yard and outdoors and all of that and then high, just, high jump just seemed to come to you. When you did it for the first time, what were your thoughts? You know, were you like, oh, this is a bit strange? Like, how did you feel? <laughs> kind of, yeah, it's a bit strange. I was like, what am I doing? You just run up and jump over a pole. Like, who thought of this? <laughs> it's really random. Like, yeah, you kind of get running track and everything. But when you have poles and mats involved, it's, I don't know, it's a bit strange. But it was, it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. Because originally I started out as a sprinter. I mean, like an eight, eight-year-old sprinter. My school PE teacher put me in because you couldn't do high jump at the school carnival. So then I went through to, it was like regionals, then it was polding, then it was stage, and I just kept winning these competitions. No training or anything. I just kind of like wander out and be like, okay, I'll jump from here. I'd run and jump. Just kept winning. And then eventually got to state. I came, so it was equal first, but third on count back, and we broke the state record. It just seems to me like it was just such a natural mm. talent. It felt so normal for you. You know, if I take us back to that time there where, you know, you were just kind of winning these races and going up and through to state and whatnot. And, you know, at one point I think you represented Australia at the World Youth Championships. I think you were only 16. That's yeah. that's nuts. Talk to us a little bit about the training that was involved in that and how that kind of led you there. So, I mean... As I got older, it took a while to actually fall in love with it. I was like, why am I doing this? Like, everyone's going and having fun after school. They're doing this and I had to go to training and it was getting a bit tedious almost. I think I was 14 when I jumped 180 for the first time, which is my height. I don't know. It's like my mum always said everything came so easy to me. She was like, you were, you're just this kid where you would put in such little effort but receive so much. And I almost, not that I took advantage of it, but I kind of did. But I didn't realise I was taking advantage of it until like a few years ago. So in the process, it was just getting like the qualifying heights, winning nationals, that kind of thing. And eventually once we got there, I, rem I remember even the coaches saying like, you're not being serious enough. Like you don't seem like you're taking this seriously, but then that's just my personality. I perform better when I'm relaxed and doing my own thing, even out on the track. There are so many girls that will be just so focused and almost look angry the whole time. Whereas mum would always say, she'd be like, you just look so happy, like bouncing around, doing your little thing. And I don't know. And then got to World Youth and I ended up being the only medal on that team. No one was expecting that. I was just so relaxed with the whole thing. But I just remember going in, doing the qualifying and just thinking it was like any other competition. But managed to make the final and I think I was ranked like sixth or something going into it. There was four of us left. I made it and the other two girls made it and then one didn't. And then my mum, my coach and it was most of the Australian team were like, Amy, you've meddled. 
I was like, what? Me? <laughs> what are you talking about? And it was the most exciting thing in the world. Ended up jumping. I think I jumped a PB that day as well. And it was, oh, I can't even describe it. It was the best experience of my life. Oh, amazing. Oh, it gives me goosebumps talking about it. Oh. I haven't, like, gone back and talked about that moment in years. Well, I, lo- I love that we could bring you back, <laughs> you know. It's, it's so amazing. And I think I guess my question to you is, did that make you go, this is the thing I want to yeah. do? Yeah. This is when I was like, I love it. Mm. Like, I love this. It mm. was just, I don't know what it was. It, it was like just knowing how much work I'd put in and the support network I had and then defying gravity as well. It's like not many people can run and jump over a bar that high. That's when I realised that I actually loved it because I was always like, oh, yeah, this is cool. And I was like, well, this is sick. Mm. This is so much fun. And then that's when I kind of fell in love with the sport and I was like, I want to do more. Like I want to go further. I want to jump higher. I want to see how far I can push my body to get to where I want to be. Amazing. So what did the training after that look like? You know, once you decided, yep, this is for me, this is it, you know, this is my passion, I love Mm. it. What did that training look like? Because I think you got to a point where you were training for the London Olympics. Mm-hmm. You know, how – talk to us about that time there. So I started weights when I was about 17, 17, 18, but then had a bad experience with weights. We figured out that weights at that point didn't work for me. But I'd also – my metabolism started to slow down. I'd actually put on a bit more weight than what – I would usually carry while jumping, which is this weird time in my life where it was just, I was going from a child to woman. I didn't know how to, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I was like, why aren't I jumping high anymore? But then, yes, leading into the London Olympics, and that's when I was diagnosed with my brain tumour. Talk to us a little bit about when you found out about the tumour. From my understanding, it was when you were only 19. Talk to us about that time there you know, how did you feel? So uh, it was a bit of a process. In hindsight, I probably had symptoms for a year and a half or so. It was kind of just headaches like once, once a month. And then it started to become like twice a month. And then it was weekly. And then it was daily. But then also just going to training, it was, I'd be vomiting after every session, even if it wasn't like taxing on the body or anything I'd just end up vomiting or I'd be walking through a doorway and I'd kind of just lose balance and just smack into the doorway like my perception was just completely off like I think the door was here but it was actually like here so I'd actually like half walk into the door and people would be like are you okay like is your you just can't balance and I was like I don't don't know I'm just clumsy I just thought it was clumsy I was just tall and gangly so that's so that's what happened it got to a stage where I was oh it was a week I think it was about a week before my 19th birthday and I was in bed vomiting all day with this headache that was literally the only way I can describe it is like someone was stabbing you in the back of the head and dragging the knife forward just like over because you know when you dry reach and it just kind of goes through your whole head and it was just that 
over and over and over. And my mum was like, this doesn't seem right. We'll take you to the doctors. Went to the doctors and they diagnosed me with middle ear. Yeah, middle ear infection. Mum was like, oh, that doesn't seem right. But I was just, I was 19. I didn't think anything was wrong. So I was just going about my usual business. So we went to a sports physician. He said the same thing, middle ear. So then I just continued for another few days. I was supposed to compete on the weekend and mum said, maybe let's take you out to the track, maybe some fresh air will do you good. And then I got out there and put my tail down, curled up into a ball and just sat there. I did not move. I was like, I I can't compete. We got to this point where I actually had my 19th birthday party. Mum said, if you wake up sick in the morning, we'll take you to the hospital. I remember waking up and I just thought, okay, okay, I kind of feel okay. 20 minutes in, no. <laughs> Ran to the bathrooms, vomiting and it was horrible. My best friend was there with me as well. She came to the hospital too. And we just sat in the ER for hours, hours waiting to see someone. Eventually we got in, told the nurse my symptoms And then they came back and said, okay, we'll get you an MRI scan. Went in, had a scan. Those machines are terrifying, especially when you're going in for a brain scan. so closed in and I just just couldn't do it. I hated it, the noise, everything. Had the scan, got wheeled back out into a room. So at least had a room, kind of lying there for hours and hours. And then the next thing I knew... A nurse came in and she said, it's a brain tumour. I was like, what? (laughs) Pardon? (laughs) And she walked up to the light box, put the um, scan on there and it was just this big, like, white blob in the middle of my brain. And after that, it's just blur. I don't remember anything. Do not remember a thing. I just, yeah, I remember mum. I think she was trying to get more answers, and like eventually, I got. I had to go into ICU because of where it was. So it was on my brainstem, and it was cutting off the fluid from my spinal cord to my brain. And they basically told me that if something happened, they'd have to drill a hole in the top of my head to release the fluid. And being nineteen, I was like, "What is?" going on like I was terrified I'd never been so scared in my life I'd come in and obviously have to check like all everything was working properly and just watching like family member after family member roll in like eyes like bawling their eyes out because no one actually knew like what was what was going to happen like I I didn't know if I was going to die the doctors couldn't tell me anything I'm getting teary now (laughs) And, um, God, I just remember even remember my sister coming in and she was with her boyfriend at the time. She was at the beach. She walked in and just seeing her and how much pain was on her face broke my heart. I, I just, I couldn't stand seeing my family and friends so hurt. I was in hospital for, I think it was five days. And then it was weird. I kind of flicked a switch where I was like, I'll be fine. 
like I'll get through it. I'll have surgery. I'll get out. I'll be okay. And then, yeah, I'd have visitors all the time. But then once we got told that the date of the surgery was the 10th of February. Yeah, diagnosed on the 5th, surgery on the 10th at 6 a.m. First surgery of the day. Did not sleep that night. Neither did mum. Don't think mum slept either. Woke up and I was kind of just lying there thinking, okay, so today's the day. I think that's kind of when it really hit me. I was just lying there. Mum and dad were standing there and they're like, you just need to sign this in case anything goes wrong. And then that's when I was like, <laughs> I was like, am I ever going to see mum and dad again? Are they ever going to see me again? I didn't know and I was, I've never been so scared, never been so scared, even though they said there's, you know, you'll be fine, but you just never know these things. And then they're like, okay, we'll give you some stuff to obviously calm you down because I was in tears crying. Mum and dad were in tears crying and it was just traumatic. And eventually I just kind of relaxed. And then got wheeled into the theatre and they just gave me the, the gas mask to put me to sleep. They're like, just count to ten and I just dozed off and off I went. Woke up and it was the amount of pain I was in. Oh, you can't even describe it. It was just a whole body shut down. And I do, I do remember just lying there thinking, okay, Amy, wiggle your toes. Okay, you can wiggle your toes. That's good. Fingers. Okay, I can wiggle my fingers. That's good. But then I think it was two, yeah, two days after the surgery, they tried to get me to sit up in bed. I didn't even get up 90 degrees and I was like, I'm going to vomit. But my body had just, it was like I'd run a marathon. And you know how your whole body just goes weak and you just, you just want to vomit. It felt like that. And I was like, I need to lie back down. So I lost about 10 kilos in hospital. I was literally skin and bone, just skin and bone. I'd lost all muscle, everything, gone. I just couldn't believe that it happened. It's mind-blowing and also petrifying. And then, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I just want to say, I guess, firstly, thank you sh so much for sharing that with us, Amy. <laughs> you were so brave. Like, the amazing women listening are probably just thinking exactly what I am, which is that just thank you for sharing with us and that you, we just can't even imagine what that would have been like and just being so open with us about the entire process and just taking us back there. No, it, mm. it wasn't easy, so we really appreciate you for that. So I guess kind of then moving on from there, what was that kind of aftermath like? You know, I know that, you know, you experienced quite a bit of, you know, mental health issues and just the struggle getting back to normal life. I mean, how did you come back from that? Talk to us a little bit about that aftermath and kind of what, what you went through, I guess, emotionally. Mm. Oh, so first I walked outside. Dad went to go get the car, bring it around. And I was just like, hold on a second. Walked downstairs, walked onto the grass and cried. Like, <laughs> barefoot, I was just on the grass and I just burst into tears. And, like, just the smell of fresh air, like the sound of the birds, being stuck in a hospital for two weeks, no fresh air, you really just, 
like you just notice those small things like grass and fresh air and the sound of birds and just like the sound of people talking on the street. You really forget that you're lucky to experience these things. I kind of tried to get back into the swing of things quite fast because it's like the longer you delay it, the harder it's going to be. So I went back to training probably a week, probably not even a week after, but my training sessions would just be walking around the Oval. So that would be my training session. And then because mum was like, you're starting from scratch. Like you have no muscle on you at all. You're literally, you have to just rebuild everything. I was like, God damn, really? So then started walking and eventually jogging and then it started running and then I started doing like stairs and slowly started to get back into the swing of things. And then it took a month before I actually jumped. I remember just standing on my marker and kind of staring at it. I'd run up and I'd walk back and I was just too scared. I I was didn't know if I was still going to be able to do it properly or if it was going to hurt if I when I landed on my head because just the fear, like knowing I was going to land on the back of my head just freaked me out. I couldn't, I just didn't want to do it. Eventually I did it and it was so rewarding. It was like my whole squad was like, was cheering and it was, it was just so nice to be able to just get back out there and jump. And then I started like training properly again and just, I don't know, just kind of life just went on as usual at first. So I started competing again, got back out there and I was just over the moon to be back competing. And then that's also when I jumped to PB. So two years after being able to be back out there jumping better than I was prior was just mind-blowing. I was like, wow, this is incredible. This is so much fun. And then everyone was was so happy that I was back out there and like just people around the track. But you can just tell you're just so happy to, to be back out here jumping. I'd qualified for the Glasgow Commonwealth Games. So I got myself back up there. I was ranked second in the country. And then I had, I think it's like I had the most amount of qualifiers for the Games, second highest qualifier. So I was like, I, I could really end up on this plane going to come games, which was, I was just beyond excited. I wanted it so badly, just knowing, like even just knowing in myself that what I'd been through, I could get myself back to this point. I was like, you can do anything. Like if you really want it, you can, you can do it. And it got to nationals and I came fourth which was a bit upsetting because sometimes the way the selection is, you don't know what they're going to do if you don't medal. I ended up not being selected, which I remember getting the call and it was just like heartbreak all over again. It was like, I, I was like, I don't want to deal with this. So I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like I was second in the country, second highest qualifier, second most amount of qualifiers. Like, Really? I think I just cried and cried and cried. (laughs) And then eventually after that was when everything really sunk in because I never really took the time to sit down and process what had happened. My surgeon always says, he he said that um, 
normally it'd be like six to eight months after where patients that would kind of hit hit everyone and almost like not PTSD, but pretty much PTSD. But mine hit me two years later and I just kind of spiralled. I was done with jumping. I was done with modelling. I was sick of everything. I didn't know, like trying to process what had happened. I, I don't I don't even know. It's like I was exhausted all the time. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to go see anyone. I ended up going to see therapists and ended up on antidepressants and anti-anxiety tablets to try and manage it because I just couldn't manage it. And that went on for about two years, about two years. It was just up and down and I'd start training again and be like, I, I hate this. I hate it. I was like, what, what's the point? Like I was in a walking frame having brain surgery and I still can't get selected for Com Games even though I'm, I was second in the country. I was like, why would I bother putting my, like my career in someone else's hands? It's kind of, you just have no control over it. And I was, I hated not having control over the situation, but I don't know, I just, I, I was almost this can sound horrible, but done with life at one stage. I was like, it's just so hard. It was just too much for me. But then, like, I had mum to help me through it. I had good friends. But but in the process, I was pushing friends away. I was even pushing my family away. And I just, I just wanted to, like, lock myself in a room and just be by myself. And it has taken me till now to kind of get back to the person that I was prior to the tumour. You don't realise how long it's going to affect you for because you kind of think, okay, yeah, it's done, it's done, but then the long-term effects was just I didn't, I had no idea what was going to happen. Amy, once again, we just so appreciate you being open with us. I think so many of the amazing women listening would also appreciate that the strength it would have taken you to get back up and do, you know, almost get to the Commonwealth Games and even just get to running again and to Mm. jump in, you know. I think that in itself is such an incredible achievement, but I think, you know, it's just nothing can prepare you for kind of where you will be mentally when you don't achieve things. I guess my question to you is Mm. what advice would you give to the women out there listening around getting back up when we get to our lowest point? Mm. Oh, I had to ask myself that question for a very long time. Try not to lose yourself and, like, your core values because I know I kind of lost everything about myself and what I believed in when I was at my lowest point. But then you have to be able to dig deep and find it again because you're the only one that's going to be able to find it. Like, you can have people to help you, but at the end of the day it's, it's you that's going to get back up. It's you that has to keep pushing and it's it's your life. So what I kind of started to do, I, I started appreciating the little things again, like when I got out of hospital. Just day by day doing something you love doing and just finding the love for whatever it is you're trying to do or trying to achieve because even trying to find the love again with high jump, I'm still struggling with it. Like sometimes I still hate it. I'm even at the moment I'm currently in a mental battle with myself about jumping because I'm so scared of it. I'm like I 
because like, I want to do it, but then my body is just isn't performing like it was. Like I'm fit and I'm ready to jump, but I just have this mental block and it's trying to break down those mental barriers that kind of restrict you from achieving what you want. Like it is so cliche, but it's just appreciate the little things. Like that's what matters the most, even like hugs from mum. That always makes you feel better. (laughs) I couldn't agree more, I think, you know, from just taking from your story, just that really, it's that you just really do have to appreciate those little Mm. things. And I think even with you, what's so amazing about you and what I find fascinating is that even today, you know, you've been through so much and you're still so young and yet you have this energy and this like love for life, which is just so incredible to see. So, you know, today... It's eight years on from your diagnosis, which is mm-hmm. incredible. And, you know, now you're you're jumping again and you're a professional model as well. I guess a question I've got for you, in your day-to-day now, you know, how do you juggle these competing kind of careers that you've got? Mm. You know, how do you manage that? And, and what advice would you give to the women who are potentially, you know, struggling with two different areas of their lives? Juggling both careers, well, I'm quite lucky because with modelling it's one day I'm working, the next day I'm not, so I'm quite flexible with everything. But to be able to juggle things, I think you just have to have the passion for both of them because if you want to do both, there's plenty of hours in a day because I know there have been times where I've had like 6am call times but sometimes I'll be up at 4.30, go do a quick session, get to the job, do my modelling job and then go to the track. I don't know, it's just try, trying to find the right balance that works for you. I just feel like if you've got a passion for multiple things, it's it's kind of endless. If you want it, you can do it. So. so what advice would you give to the women out there listening who maybe don't know what they're passionate about? You know, you were fortunate enough to learn that at 10 years old and obviously it's been an up and down mm. process and a very difficult journey, but you've stuck at it. You know, what advice would you give around finding your passion? Oh, that's a hard question because it's kind of if you don't have that instant spark, you're, you kind of think, well, I don't really like this. But I think it's just giving anything a shot. Like if you find it interesting, give it a shot, but then don't just give up if you don't love it straight away. Because, I mean, I didn't love high jumping straight away. I was like, oh, yeah, it's cool, whatever. But then I just kept at it and then eventually I got to this point where I was like, wow, I love this. So then I just kept doing it. But I think just consistency is key. Mm. Just a couple more questions. So really the final segment is looking at the lessons you've learned from your journey to date. So how did the diagnosis change your perspective on life? Don't take anything for granted was I think that that was the main one I got out of it because I think I got to a point where I was taking a lot of things for granted. I mean, being a 18, 19-year-old girl, it was I was just out having fun, training, living life out of school and I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, like life is life. And then it was just like, bang, like, let's knock you back into place. Realise what you want to do and go for it. Mm. And what would you say to other, you know, aspiring athletes out there who maybe they have that dream Mm. to, you know, make it to the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics or compete on the world stage? What would you say to them? 
don't take it too seriously. You need to have fun. Like, you need to enjoy it. A lot of people say this, but you need to fall in love with the process. Like, you need to fall in love with training. You need to fall in love with the ups and downs. You need to love the pain. You you can't do it if you don't love it all. And even the days where you're not motivated, but you need discipline. Like, there are days where I wake up and I'm just like, I cannot be bothered. But you have to be disciplined. Drag yourself out of bed go to the gym, get it done, and you'll feel so much better for it. I love it. And what would you say your next goal is? So what are you working towards now? Well, hopefully Tokyo and then Paris. Mm. Oh, so many exciting things happening for you, Amy. And once again, you know, as we come to the close of today's podcast, we just really appreciate you for being so open, for being here with us and just for really sharing and reminding us all that appreciate, appreciate, you know, appreciate the small things. And from your journey, you know, we can just, and I think we have learnt so much about Mm. that. So look, the final question is how we finish every episode Mm -hmm. of the Unforgettable Moments podcast. And that is, why was this moment finding your passion and maintaining it through extreme adversity truly unforgettable? Because it shapes who you are. It shaped who I am today, even though I've been through the absolute ringer. (laughs) It's definitely given me a new perspective. Just being able to appreciate everything. If you're putting that out into the universe and you have that positive vibe, you're going to manifest good things, which is always my thing. What you put out is what you're going to get. As long as you're kind of staying positive even through those moments where you think the world's ending you'll come out the other end even better Mm. amy we've had a blast thank you so much for sharing your unforgettable moment Mm. with us thank you for having me Thank you for tuning in to the Unforgettable Moments podcast by Forever New. If you loved going behind the curtain with us and hearing about the pivotal moments that help shape these incredible women, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and share on social media. For updates on new episodes and the upcoming featured women, follow Forever New on Instagram at forevernew underscore official or visit Forever New online at forevernew.com.au.